Let's read the, uh, let's pick it up at verse 4 just to remind you of these incredible descriptions of love. Love is patient, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is kind. It is not jealous, love does not brag, and it is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked or easily provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is where we're starting this morning. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, that's our title for this morning, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, verse 11, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as just as I also have been fully known. But now, faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love, if you look at the first part of verse eight, never fails. You know, we live in a culture that is asking big questions about love. I know the church is asking questions about love. How do we live out this love in a broken world, in a often divided church, in marriages that fail, and abandonment and all these things. I mentioned at the beginning as uh, with some opening comments that I can hear your hearts because I hear mine. It sounds good, love does, until you try it. I'm imperfect. How can I practice and experience this kind of love? The world is asking. Stephen Um, who's written a great commentary on 1 Corinthians, is quoting Elaine de, de Bottom, but the however you say his name, <laughs> a thought-provoking philosopher of the atheist stripe. He has a remarkable reflection of love, I'm quoting, from an atheist. Passing an unfortunate wo woman in the street one day, my girlfriend asked me, would you have loved me if I had an enormous birthmark on my face like she does? The yearning is that the answer be yes, an answer that would place love above the mundane surfaces of the body. Or more particularly, it's cruel, unchangeable ones, i.e., I will love you not just for your wit, your talent, your beauty, but simply because you are you, with no strings attached. I love you for who you are deep in your soul, not for the color of your eyes, the length of your legs, or the size of your checkbook. Now, I'm quoting a man who's asking questions about love, a non-Christian. The longing is that the lover admire us, stripped of our external assets, appreciating the essence of our being without accomplishment. Even if we are beautiful and rich, then we do not wish to be loved on account of these things, for they may fail us, and with them love. The desire is that I be loved even if I lose everything, leaving nothing but me, this mysterious me, taken to be the self at its weakest, most vulnerable point. Do you love me enough that I may be weak with you? Everyone loves strength, but do you love me for my weakness? Now that's a reflection of a philosopher who's an atheist. 
asking the kind of questions that we've been asking about love. And here's the essence of what he said. He said, will love last if I am no longer able to do the things that please you or the things that you initially found attractive or the things that, you know, make life work pragmatically every day? True love is the ultimate foretaste of the future of the church. Love will go on. But the question that you may be asking this morning, and I know the world is asking, is, that, is this, will love fail me? So many of us who are here this morning are the victims of broken love, broken households, divorces, abandonment, you name it. Two centuries ago, Jonathan Edwards probed the question as to what makes the church like heaven. His answer, it is love. The church's manifestation in time of the glories that are yet to come is not accomplished in the gift of tongues, nor in prophecy, giving, teaching. It is accomplished in love. The greatest evidence, says Edwards, that heaven has invaded our sphere, that the Spirit has been poured out on us, that we are citizens of a kingdom not yet consummated, is Christian love, close quote. Jesus said they will know that you belong to me because of your love one for another. At the end of each week, I wonder how many of us actually assess our Christian walk based upon how well we loved. I wonder if that's even on our radar. Lord, how well did I love? I wonder how many of us wake up and pray, Lord, just clothe me with your love today. That's enough. Everything else will follow. And I even asked the question of myself as I pondered some of these principles once again, is how often do I pray for others that they'll be filled with God's love? How much of the time do I make it about myself? Lord, would you do this for me? Lord, I want to manifest this fruit. That's good. But are we praying that the love of the church would abound? The love of the church in Corona would make such an impact on the unbelieving community that we would actually experience an awakening and a revival. That's what we've been praying for. But Jesus prayed for the church that we would be the answer to that prayer, that we would be unified, that we would be one. We are the answer to those dilemmas, the, the way we live, how we treat our spouse. The more you experience this broken world, the more you long for the perfect to come. Amen? Nothing here is perfect. And certainly we would have to admit, especially as we've studied 1 Corinthians 13, reading from my notes, that even our love often fails. It's imperfect. The only perfect love is God's. But when Christ's love glows through his church, the world and the church get a taste of what is to come. I'm going to ask you, are you hungry for it? Would you like to experience it and even give it away? It's going to drive you and me often to the foot of the cross. The right use of gifts will help others see and experience Jesus' love. The problem in the Corinthian church is that they elevated the gifts above love and they were losing their witness in the city. Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel or a peck measure or a basket. But they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, Matthew 5, 16, that they may see your what? Your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. 
See, light and love are really two things that go together. The way that the world's going to see the light of the church is through our love. Now, we've defined love in a broader context. It's not always just telling everybody what they want to hear. But love, nonetheless, is these characteristics that we've been reading about. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, Ephesians 5, 8. Walk as children of light. Walk out love, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, Ephesians 5, 8 and 9. Donald Gray Barnhouse says these words. When Christ was in the world, he was like the shining sun. When the sun sets, the moon comes up. The moon is a picture of believers, the church. The church shines, but not with its own light. It shines with reflected light. At times, the church has been a full moon dazzling the world with an almost daytime light. Those were times of great enlightenment, for example, in the days of Paul and Luther and Wesley. At other times, the church has only been a thumbnail moon, and in those days, very little light shone on the earth. But whether the church is full or a thumbnail moon, whether waxing or waning, it reflects the light of Christ. Our light does not originate with us, close quote. And, you know, we, we look at our culture right now, and some of us have described the culture as a dark time. Confusion and chaos. Angry people. Violence. Um, division. Hate. What can quell these things? The only thing I think that's going to win the day is true love. And I think it's very timely that we've been in this section. We are called to carry the torch of love in this generation. How can we shine more brightly? That's the question. you got to stay in the light. If your love has been waning, it's, because, it's probably because your walk has been waning. You might want to write that down. If your love has been waning, it's probably because your walk is waning. Listen to this story. A man returning from a journey brought his wife a matchbox that would glow in the dark. After giving it to her husband, she turned out the light, but the matchbox could not be seen. Both thought they had been cheated. Then the wife noticed some French words on the box and asked a friend to translate them. The inscription said, If you want me to shine in the night, keep me in the light. And that's the truth of love. That's the truth of the Holy Spirit moving in your life. The more time you bask in the light of God, the more you will radiate with the light. The more you will shine in this world that is desperate to see love. The world is wondering if the cross is legit and they're looking at us. I heard a story of a young soldier who was fighting in Italy during World War II. He jumped into a foxhole just ahead of some bullets. He immediately tried to deepen the hole for more protection and cover, frantically scraping at the dirt with his hands. He unearthed something metal and brought it up, and it was a silver cross left by a former resident of that foxhole. A moment later, another leaping figure landed beside him as shells screamed overhead. When the soldier got a chance to look, he saw his new companion was an army chaplain. Oh, what luck. Holding out the cross to the chaplain, the soldier gasped, I'm glad to see you, chaplain. How do you work this thing? <laughs> oh, you guys have heard, no, there's no atheists in foxholes when the bullets are screaming over your head. But for a lot of people, the bullets are not material. They're, they're hurts and hits that they've taken. Some people have had a bad experience with 
feeling like they did not experience the love of Christ through the church. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says, love never fails. If you have an ESV in verse 8 beginning, love never ends. The New Living Translation says, love will last forever. The one commentary translates, love never falls. And I think it's good and solid to say, love never fails. I fail, but love never fails. See the word never? It's not at any time. It is never, not at all, no, not ever. Love never fails. The word fails is from a Greek word that has the basic meaning of falling, especially the idea of a final falling. It was used of a flower or a leaf that falls to the ground, withers, and decays. Never refers to time, not to frequency. The idea is that no, at no time will divine love ever fall, wither, or decay. By nature, it is permanent because it is the nature of God, and therefore it will not be abolished. Now, I was up here as we were doing some worship, and I had a couple of scriptures that I think are for a few people out here that relate to this. And I want you to go to Deuteronomy 31 for a second. Love never fails. And I want to show you a few verses. Deuteronomy 31. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua 1 because I want to show you this idea of love never failing and how it relates to God's call and his abiding presence in our lives. This is Deuteronomy 31. This is Moses addressing Israel. He says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. 31.6 of Deuteronomy. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not, what's your Bible say? Fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. You shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now keep on turning to your right. You're going to get to Joshua 1 just in a few pages. Now you all know that Joshua took the mantle from Moses to lead the people into the promised land. And he's being reassured by God that as God was with Moses, he will be with Joshua, the new leader. Big sandals to fill, to say the least. Joshua 1.5 says, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Love, God never fails. Be strong and courageous as a result of my presence, if you will, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. I will not fail you or forsake you. This is echoed in Hebrews 13. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 13. But Hebrews 13, I'll just read it for you. You can note it. You've probably heard it before. It says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Another way to say that is, I will never fail you or forsake you, so that we may confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? When all other loves fail you, think of Moses. How many times did the whining Israelites tax the man? How many times 
maybe not recorded in Scripture, but we know of a few, did Moses have to go to God and say, Oh, Lord, they want to kill me. <laughs> right? They're, they're scheduling caravans back to Egypt, the place of slavery. Why did you give me these whiners? Anybody? Anybody ever prayed that before? Why, Lord? <laughs> Nobody wanted to raise their hand because they might be sitting next to the person they prayed about. But anyway, we won't go there. Right? Why, Lord? And the reassurance is, look, I'm not going to leave you, and I'm not going to forsake you. People may abandon you. Situations may get difficult. But I'm not going anywhere. My love never fails. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. Can I remind you of Romans 8, 31 through 39? You remember that? Not height, not depth, not angels, not principalities. Life, death, nothing will ever separate us from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing! Did you hear that? Nothing. Nothing's going to separate you. He's not going to give up on you. That's the kind of love that gives me confidence. Amen? That's the kind of love that maybe many of us have never known before. That's the love of God. His love will never fall. It's synonymous with being abolished. It will never cease. It's also synonymous with love abiding. Now abide, faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is love. Love will never cease to exist even in heaven because heaven is where God is. Love will never die. God's character, says Gordon Fee, after all, cannot fluctuate from what it is. He is love. Psalm 136, 1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. forever. How many times does the psalmist repeat that in Psalm 136? Some of us remember singing songs in church where the preacher would say the middle part, and then we would say, His love endures forever. How many of you? Back in the 90s? No? Nobody? A few of you? Thank you. But by contrast, if there are gifts of prophecy, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, they will be done away. Now, love's going to remain, but gifts of prophecy have a shelf life. If there are tongues, they will cease. Love won't cease, but tongues will. If there is knowledge, here is the gift of word of knowledge. These are all gifts that were mentioned in chapter 12, verses 8 through 11. So note, you have to see these as gifts now. And that's what Paul begins with. Gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. The gift of tongues will cease. If there is knowledge, that's the word of knowledge, a spiritual gift, it will be done away. Paul contrasts love with temporal spiritual gifts. The permanence of love with the temporal nature of spiritual gifts. The Corinthians were saying something like this. Hey, when you practice the gift of tongues, maybe you even have the, gift, the tongues of angels, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. And that's got to be as close as you could get to the halls of heaven, this side of heaven. Paul says, no, it's not. The gift of tongues is not the closest that you could get to heaven on earth. The gift of prophecy is not the closest that you could get. The gift of a word of knowledge, boy, the Lord spoke to me and it was right on the money is not the closest that you could get to heaven. Those will perish one day. You know, the closest that you could get to heaven on earth is when you love with God's love. How you doing? The Corinthians had elevated the spiritual gifts and they said, hey, if you don't have this gift, well, you're, you're a second-class citizen, a second-class Christian. Oh, you don't have this gift 
And Paul says, look, if you have those gifts but you don't love, you're nothing. You've lost your witness in the community and the church. Sometimes we are measuring by the wrong measuring sticks. You see, the evidence that the Holy Spirit is moving in your life is love. These gifts serve a purpose. But if anything, may I submit to you, and this is a thought I had this week, that when the gifts are in operation, should they not point people more to Jesus? If, if the gifts in operation are pushing people away from the love of Christ, causing division in the body, pray tell, how could they really accomplish the edifying or the building up of the body, which is what the gifts are supposed to be? So Paul says, look, they have to be energized by love. Love has to be their goal. If, they, if you exercise the gift of tongues, if you exercise prophecy, if you exercise word of knowledge, then it should be showing the love of God, even if the word could be difficult, even if it's corrective, which this whole section I mentioned to you is. For the Corinthians, this is where they were failing. Paul says there's no prophet in the charismata, the spiritual gifts, there's no profit in it if it is not driven by love. If it's about self, if it's about self-aggrandizement, if it's about look at me and look at the gifts that I have, uh-uh. That's the kind of love that falls. And it makes other people fall as well. These manifestations of the Spirit in verse 8 are for the church's present existence, which God's new people live between the times, as one writer puts it. Between the inauguration of the end through the death and resurrection of Jesus, inaugurated through the gospel, if you will, and the subsequent outpouring of the Spirit to the final consummation when Jesus comes again and we get new bodies. The gifts are for that time in between, if you will, the first and second comings. Once Christ has come, we don't need word of knowledge. You know why? We're going to have the knowledge of God. We're going to use our entire brains, not just 8%. Oh, maybe it's 10. <laughs> right? We're going to see the Lord face to face. Right? We're not going to need the gifts anymore because we will have the reality. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying God has graciously bestowed these gifts on the church, but these gifts are going to pass away. The question is not if they will pass away. The question is when. And this is where some of the debate lies. Some of you have heard the debates about cessationism. You say, cessation, what? <laughs> well, cessationism says that these gifts, especially the gift of tongues seems the one they, to be the one they pick on, ceased at a given time in history. Read it again with me. If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If they are tongues, they will what? That's the word where cessationism comes from. They ceased. And here's what they're saying. They're saying a cessationist view of the spiritual gifts says this. That at the end of the first century, at the closing of the apostolic age, or the completion of the canon of the Bible, which I think every scholar would tell you was completed before the turn of the first century. Revelation probably written around 90 to 95 AD. These, this camp says those sign gifts, those gifts of uh, prophecy and uh, tongues and interpretation of tongues, they ceased at the closing of the apostolic age or the final written word of the canon of Scripture, and they are no more. 
so that any manifestation of the gift of tongues today is either from the flesh or even potentially demonic. Now, some of you have heard these debates. And part of the reason these debates came up is because in the early 1900s, there was a revival of what's called the Pentecostal movement. And these manifestations began to show up in the church. And as they did, there were people watching saying, oh, I don't think that's of God. It didn't fit well with their theological perspective and made some people uncomfortable. Now let me say that we do know that many of us have walked into a certain context where it was out of order. Maybe, we, maybe you walked into a, a Pentecostal church and, and it was crazy and there was no interpretation and you were like, this, this is craziness. And that's certainly true. There have been some contexts where it's been out of order and we might even wonder if it was from God and there has been some so-called revival movements that I can think of in the recent past where they were barking like dogs flopping around like fish, and I'm not joking when I say this. And people looked at it and they said, if that's Christianity, you can have it. If that's a revival of the Holy Spirit where it's chaos and what appears to me is craziness, you can have that. And sadly, for a lot of the church, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not even sure where that, do you guys know where that phrase came from? Who would ever throw the baby out with the bathwater? I don't know, but anyway, you know, you know what I'm saying. So rather than us saying, well, maybe that expression was unbiblical or maybe there's you know, something else that we need to, to figure out here, they threw everything away. Now we've had debates in the church. If you've been around at all, you know there's been debates from some major teachers with Calvary Chapel and it did no good for the church. It just caused further division. Let me just say this to you. I was in a debate on KKLA with uh, another scholar and we were debating two friends in the cessationist camp uh, who are our friends. We're colleagues on this radio program. And we debated them, and uh, we're arguing from the text, and I'll, and I'll give you my textual argument in a second because that's my main argument, not experience. But if anybody ever had an expression of the gift of tongues, anybody anywhere, so let's say in 1986, in the jungles of Ecuador, somebody spoke in tongues, and it was legit. It was interpreted Let's say that somebody got saved or uh, somebody was drawn closer to the Lord. Then the gift has not ceased. Well, that was isolated in the jungle. Yeah, maybe so. But that means the gift has not ceased. And some of you have read some uh, books that talk about some of these expressions of the gift of tongues. My first argument is not experience. Please hear what I'm saying. I'm going to argue from the text. But I'm going to say to you, if there's ever one experience of the gift of tongues or word of knowledge or prophecy that was legitimate from the Holy Spirit, legitimately from the Holy Spirit, then the gift has not ceased. It may be infrequent. It may be sometimes hard to find, but it's still there. Here's D.A. Carson. He says, this view assumes cessationism without warrant that the switch to the verb Pusantai is more than a stylistic variation. Worse, it interprets the middle voice irresponsibly. In Hellenistic Greek, the middle voice affects the meaning of the verb in a variety of ways. And not only in the future of some verbs where middle voices are common, but also in the tenses. This is a little technical, but stick with me. The middle form may be used while the active force is preserved. 
At such points, the verb is deponent. One knows what force the middle voice has only by careful inspection of all occurrences of the verb being studied. In the New Testament, the verb prefers the middle, but that does not mean the subject stops under its own power. For instance, when Jesus rebukes the wind and raging waters, the storm stops. Same verse, Luke 8, 24, and certainly not under its own power. Here's his point. You can't make a good argument just from the Greek language that the word cease is anything but a synonym for the other terms in verse 8. Take a look. Whether there are prophecies, it will be done away. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. See, they make a big deal about the word cease there, but done away as a phrase is a synonym with cease. If something ceases, it's done away. Notice the repetition of done away when it comes to the word of knowledge at the end of verse 8. Here's my point. I don't want to beat this to death because I don't want to stand up here and be divisive, but I'll say this. I don't think there's a good case to be made that these spiritual gifts are no longer in operation. That's what I'm saying. Now, do I think they need to be done in order? Yes. Do I think that they're probably to be best used in a believer's meeting and not necessarily a Sunday morning service where you know it's a mixed multitude? I would say yes. But there is a place for these gifts. And when we get into chapter 14, we'll talk more about how they actually work. So the, the verb gain that Paul uses four times in verses 8, 10, and 11 is the one that we translate to set aside or to pass away or to cease. It's the same idea. For we know in part, hey, now we're at verse 9. Praise the Lord. <laughs> we will be done on time, I promise. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. All these gifts belong to the present and not the future. They are for now only. When we know fully, they will be unnecessary and obsolete. If you're taking notes, first illustration, our knowledge is partial or imperfect. Our knowledge is a partial knowledge, even of those that we hang around the most. And our prophecy does not explain the fullness of what and who God is. Our knowledge and prophesying are sufficient for us to be saved and to know God, but they are certainly not complete. Would you agree? How many times have you been in a Bible study, looked at a passage 17 times and went, I never saw that before. Wow. How much of the knowledge of the Almighty do you think we have? <laughs> we have some, but we have not begun to even plumb the depths of actually who God is. How deep and incredibly powerful he is. In Romans 11.33, probably the greatest mind that the church has ever known, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Romans 11.33. Psalm 145 verse 3 says, Great is the Lord, highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. You and I will plumb the depths of God throughout eternity. Heaven is not going to be boring. You're going to be walking around for a thousand years just trying to get your bearings. Wow. 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 Streets of gold. Who, who cares? Wow. Wow. But your biggest wow factor is going to be able to see God. How many of you... I've just thought about that just for a few moments to see God, the one who said, let there be light. And light said, okay. 
The one who said to the water, that's as far as you can go. And the water went, the one who speaks fish, go pick up Jonah now. Whatever that (laughs) sounds like. Talk about the gift of tongues. Glory. We've only got a foretaste of the glory. We know in part. Sometimes people say, Pastor Michael, you know a lot of Scripture. Yeah, but I don't know all of it. (laughs) I know in part. I know parts, and some parts I forget. (laughs) Can I get a witness? Where are we again? I never know. But when the perfect comes, 10, here's an important word that you should write down. It's teleos, T-E-L-E-I-O-S. When the perfect comes. It's a word often used to speak of complete fulfillment, maturity. When the perfect comes, what will happen? The partial, which would include the three gifts named, but all the spiritual gifts, but the three most elevated in Corinth. The partial will be done away. Same idea. Tongues, prophecy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, fill in the blank. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. What's the perfect? That's the debate. Some people say the perfect is the completion of the New Testament canon. Okay? Do you think people reading 1 Corinthians in AD 55 thought that the perfect was the completion of the written Bible? I doubt it. And after the written Bible has come, we know things are imperfect, but their argument is what's perfect is the Word of God. Let me give the benefit of the doubt. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. So they say, ah, this is the completion of the New Testament canon. I don't agree. Second view, it's the maturity or establishment of the church or the maturing process of the church because teleos can mean maturity. So when you're mature, you no longer need these gifts. Say what? I would think that the more you grow, the more you would long for the gifts of the Spirit. Amen? So I don't think that that view holds water. Some people say the second coming of Jesus Christ is in view. That's the perfect. And I would agree, but I'm going to give you a little more definition here. It's the second coming of Jesus. Because perfect is neuter in the Greek. It's teleon. Eliminating the possibility that it relates to a person. So, well then what is the perfect? even though we know Jesus is perfect. But to be precise, the perfect is probably referring to the eternal state or the consummation or the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign moving into eternity, if you will. The perfect refers to the state of affairs brought about by the second coming of Jesus Christ, which inaugurates a golden age where the wolf and the lamb lie down together, where the lion eats grass where the child could play at the hole of the cobra, where they will no longer hurt in my holy mountain, where the curse will be reversed and death will die and disease will be gone and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's the perfect. Oh, how I long. (laughs) Yeah, you can clap for that. It's coming. It's coming. The perfect is coming. Hold on, dear saint. This is an imperfect time. We're in a broken world. But the perfect is coming. The only possibility by process of elimination of the perfect 
is the eternal heavenly state of believers where death has died. When Jesus Christ comes, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The perfect is coming. I was visiting a church member on Friday who has a, a hard diagnosis. Save a miracle, probably getting ready to go to be with the Lord. So we were talking about scripture and life. His daughter happened to be there. She's a beautiful saint of God. Very spiritual, grounded sister in Christ. So we were talking a little bit and we were by the bedside of this beloved brother. And she said, Pastor Michael, some years ago my grandmother died. I was 21. I had an incredible relationship with my grandma and my grandmother passed away and I wasn't able to say goodbye to her. And she said I was devastated. One night, the Lord gave me a dream. She said, I've held on to this dream for the last, I think she said 30 or 40 years. And it's, it's one of those ones where, you know, we, we can measure certain dreams, but there are other ones where we're like, I think the Lord was speaking to me there. She said, I was in my childhood, childhood home in Orange County. I'm 21. And she said, I was in the backyard in a beloved home that was really a treasure to me. And she said, I was in the back of the backyard. Two men showed up at the front door, and there was my grandmother in her aged state, you know, when I remembered her as grandma. And they knocked on the front door, and these two men were with her, and she said, we, they walked in, and, and she was greeting people that she loved, like generations of people that she loved, and saying hello to them, and there were hugs, and and kisses, and she said, I was all the way in the back of the backyard, so I saw what was happening in the distance, but I was waiting my turn. Grandma, Grandma, I didn't get to say goodbye. She says, as Grandma passed sections of people, she was becoming younger and younger. And she said, by the time my grandmother reached me, she was 21, the exact age that I was. And we looked at each other. And she said, I wasn't able to touch her at that moment. But my grandmother was 21, my exact same age, and she got younger as she made her way to the back of the backyard. And I was like, oh, the Lord just showed you what it's going to be like. I've been saying 18, I'll take 21. <laughs> I'll take it. Can I get a witness? <laughs> oh, Lord, yes. My knees will take 21. My back will take 21. My hairline will take 21. <laughs> My hair color will take 21. You fill in the blank. At the coming of Jesus Christ, the final purpose of God's saving work in Christ will have been reached, and finally we will say, it's perfect. Right now, you get little snippets of it, right? You ever try to take the snapshot, with, you're with your family, or maybe you go to the beach, or you see a sunset, or a bird in flight, and, and you go, wow. How many commercials we've all seen? This is perfect. But there's this gnawing little voice in somewhere in here that says, no, it's not. It's not perfect. But there's a time coming when the Lord will put all this behind us. At the coming of Christ, the final purpose of God's saving work in Christ will be of reach, will be of reach, 
will be reached. At that point, those gifts now necessary for the building up of the church in the present age will disappear because the complete or the perfect will have come. This writer says, to cite Bart's marvelous imagery, because the sun rises, all lights are extinguished. The perfect state will be when we're with him. We will not even need the light of a lamp or the sun, for the Lord will be our light. And our gaze and longing will become love's touch. My faith will become my eyes. My faith and hope will become reality. Second illustration, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I be became a man, I did away. That's cater gain again, and it's done away as in the same idea of verse eight. I did away with childish things. They will be done away. A child's speaking, thinking, and reasoning are incomplete or immature. When a child grows up, he sets aside or does away with childish things. He discards things belonging to childhood like vocabulary and ways of looking at things because a child has a limited capacity. This is simply illustrative. A child normally has a limited vocabulary with which he or she communicates. Thought patterns of a child are immature, incomplete. That is exactly what an adult expects from a child. We're not downgrading those. Some of us long to be a child again. The feelings and thoughts of a child are true and just insofar as they are natural impressions of the objects which they relate. They are neither irrational nor false, but they are inadequate. They are undeveloped in scope or grasp. Do you see the illustration? Paul's just saying, when we're there in the perfect, we will have discarded the spiritual gifts which gave us incredible insight and gave us a touch of heaven. Like if you've ever experienced the gift of tongues, wow, you're like, wow, that didn't come from me. That, that's divine. You got a word of knowledge and you gave it to somebody for encouragement. You're like, wow, I became a channel of God's grace. But even those things will be no longer needed when the perfect comes. It will be like going back to your childhood and your childhood vocabulary. Why would you ever do that? You won't need that. That's the idea. Although some of us long for the days of the innocence of a child. Amen. Sometimes I wish I didn't know what I know. Oh, Lord. For now, final illustration, third one. We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Some of us are saying, I've been trying to dim my mirrors lately. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Anyway, I like the dim light. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then, so contrasting now to the perfect, then in the perfect, I shall know fully, just as I also have been Fully known. The fully known phrase there is probably how God knows us. We're not going to be little gods in heaven, but we're going to have a fuller knowledge, a more intimate knowledge of people and of God than we've ever had before. Some people are concerned, and I understand. Will my loved ones know me in heaven? Will I know them in heaven? Answer, yes! Yes! As Walter Martin so eloquently put it, you won't be dumber then than you are now. <laughs> Is it you? <laughs> now, you say, but you just said everybody's going to be 21, Pastor Michael. Yes. Will they have those mixer name tags on? Hello, my name is... I think we get a little foretaste of this when Moses and Elijah appear at the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter knows who they are. Shall we make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, 
One for Elijah. How did Peter know? Because Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is metamorphosized and his face shone like the sun, got a foretaste of heaven. We will know as we are known. That's Moses. That's Elijah. That's Michael. That's Daniel. I won't need an introduction. I'm just going to know. Praise the Lord. Yeah. So anybody that you want to meet in heaven, you can just go right up to them. Some of you are forming a line for Adam and Eve, I know. I understand. <laughs> Moses was unique, and this is just, if you want to read this devotionally, Exodus 33, 18 through 23, because I have to stop in two minutes. But Moses had an experience with God face-to-face, and scholars say that face-to-face is a Hebrew idiom for as intimate as you can get. Nobody could see God's face and live. Moses only got to see the back parts of God's glory. But Moses had an interchanges with God that were as intimate as possible this side of heaven. And Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And that's the idea of face-to-face here. Moses had this encounter, this intimacy. He knew God in a special way, not like other prophets. That's what God said about Moses. I I interact with Moses face to face. It's an idiom, and that's what we need to understand. It's almost like saying mouth to mouth, but it's, it's this idea of intimacy without an intermediary, if you will. And so, one day, my faith will become my eyes. I will know fully as I am fully known. I will know my loved ones who've gone on before me, Christian brothers and sisters, people I've heard about over history, Biographies I've read about godly missionaries that inspired my life. I'll know them all and they'll know me. Isn't that incredible? All because love came down to save me. But now abide or remain faith, hope, love. These three, but Paul will conclude the chapter by saying the greatest, the preeminent, the one that will last forever. You could debate whether faith and hope will last forever. Faith will be my eyes in heaven. Hope will be my realization in heaven. So maybe there's nuances of these that will remain. But here's one thing I do know. Love is the greatest and love never fails. It's perpetual. God is love. And so I would ask you to hang in there because love will never fail you. Richard Baxter says, Lord, it belongs not to my care. Whether I die or live, to love and serve thee is my share, and this thy grace must give. If life be long, I will be glad that I might long obey. If short, yet why should I be sad to soar to endless day? Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. He that into God's kingdom comes must enter by this door. Come, Lord, when grace hath made me meet thy blessed face to see. For if thy work on earth be sweet, what will thy glory be? Then shall I end up my sad complaints and weary sinful days and join with the triumphant saints who sing Jehovah's praise. My knowledge of that life is small, the eye of faith is dim, but tis enough that Christ knows all and I shall be with him. Lord, we do see in a mirror dimly now, and I know mirrors in first century Corinth were 
polished bronze and maybe they give a reasonable reflection, but even they fall short of Paul's point. One day we will see clearly, no longer through an enigma, no longer through dimness, no longer through intermediaries, we will look into your face. We will see God. That is an amazing, beautiful reality when the perfect comes. This is an imperfect time. I'm an imperfect man, but you're a God who has loved us to the end. And you will never stop loving us all the way into eternity. And forever and ever, your love will never fail. You will always love me. I don't even know how to think about that, Lord. But I think some of your saints need to hear this. I will always love you. Always. Thank you for that love, Lord. I want to ask you just to just spend a little time just thinking about his love and goodness. If you've not known that love before, ask him to be your Lord and Savior right now. Tell him, I believe in your death on the cross, Jesus. Thank you for loving me to the cross. Thank you for your resurrection. I want to follow you. Be my Lord and Savior. Please pray if it's you. If you don't know him, if you're not sure right now, Lord, I want to know you. I turn my life over to you. I repent of my sin. If you're a saint, and maybe your love tank's been a little bit empty, I pray you'd be encouraged, filled up with his love. And if you're a saint on the front lines right now and you've been fighting the good fight and you're feeling a little battle-weary, be of good cheer. The perfect is coming. It will last forever. His love will never fail you. And Lord, we know you're going to be faithful here as we journey on earth. We won't, we won't make sense of everything this side of the perfect, but we do know you've promised to never fail us or forsake us as we journey on our walk with you. So help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith and our love. In Jesus' name I pray, all God's people said, amen.